I am a Nick. I am Zimbabwean by birth. I am South African by accent. I am American by choice and Greek by the grace of God. Um, and so if you aren't understanding some of what is being said, then uh, you can write down a question, maybe ask me later, um, and blame Matt. Um, it's a privilege to be joining you in your series uh, going through the book of Matthew called Not of This World. Uh, Matt and the elders have uh, come up with what is a working definition for what it means uh, to not be in this world, and it is the people of God that are under the king's rule, that are in the king's place, uh, that include the king's presence and submitted to his precepts. I couldn't have done a better job. Uh, that's pretty good, Matt and elders. And last week, uh, you guys were introduced to John the Baptizer. Um, and previous to that, the only um, interaction uh, that the writer of the gospel had presented to his readers was Jesus as an infant. Now we suddenly see Jesus uh, as a full-grown man, and I'm going to be reading from Matthew 3, verses 13 through to 4:11 from the ESV. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Is this, does, can I move this? Okay. okay. There's three elements to this narrative that I'm uh, going to hit on this morning. The one is the baptism, the other one is the voice, and lastly, it's the temptations. The first question you are probably asking yourselves, as many of the readers would be asking in that, in that place, is why did Jesus need to be baptized? Um, what was the point of, of Jesus being baptized? Uh, generally, there was an understanding uh, within the Jewish nation, baptism was not a foreign concept for them. Uh, in fact, a lot of proselytes would come to the faith and they would be baptized. But what they understood about baptism was that the greater always baptized the lesser. 
And there was a sense in which, especially the Pharisees and religious class would say, of course, of course, for the dirty Gentiles and the proselytes and, and for all of those people, Greeks included, they need to be washed, they need to be baptized in order to be able to become part of the people of faith. But what we see here is that this is not what is happening. In fact, previously, John is saying to the Pharisees, no, no, this is not how this works. John is reminding them that God can bring people that bring worship to him out of even the rocks. And he's reminding them that their time is short. And there will be a moment where actually the Gentiles will come into the kingdom. And so this is, is part of the, the context that the baptism takes place. One of the first reasons that Jesus gets baptized is to announce his kingship. And you would say, well, how does that work? Uh, You're announcing your kingship by humbling yourself to this weird guy that's dressed in camel's hair and eats locusts and is a crazy guy that literally the Bible says is howling in the wilderness. How does that help? It's because of the nature of the kingdom. Jesus is announcing his kingship of the upside-down kingdom. He's announcing the kingship of the fact that he is is a king of a group of people that are not of this world. And the ways of the kingdom of the earth are not the ways of the kingdom of God. And the ways of the kings of this earth are not the ways of the king of this kingdom. And so it is... Uh, It is a destabilizing, subversive act. And as the elders continue to take you through Matthew, be aware of these things. Every time Jesus is doing something, he is subverting and destabilizing the idea of what life should look like, what kingdoms should look like, who kings are, and where your allegiance should lie. And so his baptism is the first one of those destabilizing acts. He's a humble yet powerful king. He is a meek, yet determined, kind, yet immovable God. This is what he's showing us. As the voice of the Father reverberates, the Father is saying, in this man, everything I want to say, everything I want to reveal, everything I want to do, everything I want you to understand about me is in this man, because when you've seen him, you've seen me. And as the elders continue to take you through this amazing book, you will see just layers and layers of this revelation coming through. Just so you know, I have moved quickly on the bottom of my page here, right? Hopefully I'm not moving too quickly. Um, The second reason that he does that is to fulfill all righteousness. Now you can ask yourself a question, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was unrighteous and, and he needed to be baptized and cleansed so he could be righteous? That's not really what that means. It means the right way of doing something. And so he is deliberately choosing to submit himself to a life that is in accordance with the tenets of the kingdom of heaven and also, as we've said, opening the gate for other people that have been left out because of the religious class to be included. Um, He is fulfilling all of the prophecies that said that he would come as a humble Messiah. And it's also a precursor to the spiritual baptism that his disciples will receive. Because remember, John said, there is one coming. I baptize you with water, but there is one coming that will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is who Jesus is. Most importantly, though, Jesus is validating John's ministry. By being baptized by John, he's saying this guy looks nuts. His diet is nuts, but he's not nuts. He is the Elijah that was to come before the Messiah. His is a valid ministry. And the fact that I'm choosing to submit to this, even though I don't need to, is proof of that. Lastly, to model. I love baptism. Baptism is such a uniquely Trinitarian thing. 
It is, it is the, the, the fact that we are, are coming into relationship with the Father once you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are modeling his, his death and His resurrection through baptism. It's such an amazing thing that in this context, we have the Son being baptized, the Spirit of God descending on Him in the shape of a dove, and the voice of the Father, all three as, or elements, persons rather, of the Trinity, are present in that moment in a way that is so unique that very seldom happens throughout the rest of the gospel story. It's a powerful thing. We identify with Him in baptism because He identified with us. The Trinity is present in this moment like no other. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the voice of the Father speak with, speaks with tones of deep affection. And deep love, not utility. Jesus had not done anything. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And why could he say that? Because, because there was a sense in which he wanted to express his pure pleasure for who he is. Just simply who he was. And in that, and we'll get to that a little bit later, because we are heirs in Christ. We are his brothers and sisters. That same voice of affection and affirmation rests on us, not a voice of utility, not a voice of performance that says, this is my daughter, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But we'll talk about that a little later. Hopefully this morning I'm going to answer the question, how does the temptation of Jesus or, or this aspect help us to be the king's people and to live under his precepts within his presence? So let's look at the temptations. We've got to ask ourselves this question. The Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The most important thing we've got to understand by that, and I can't spend a whole lot of time here, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. The devil tempts him. James tells us God does not tempt us. God is present. Uh, there is a trial and suffering and testing that we undergo, but there is a difference between being tempted by God. This is not a dangling of something that he knows you shouldn't do. Um, this is what the devil is doing in this um, in this moment. Why? Well, anytime we have a question, and this is the, the teacher coming out, anytime you have a question in the Bible, there's a very good thing to remember. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so you think to yourself, is this question answered anywhere else? Why did Jesus have to be tempted? Well, the writer to Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2 why Jesus had to be tempted. In Hebrews 2.17, he says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, merciful understanding um, our nature, our brokenness, our sinfulness, faithful in the sense that he was able to stand in the midst of temptation so that he could make propitiation, which means to atone for or to pay the penalty of, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those that are being tempted. I want to uh, help us understand this important thing. Understanding Jesus as the God-man, fully God and fully man, is, is a difficult thing. My, Michael Eaton says it's kind of like Medusa. If you stare too long at one, you'll be turned into stone. You know? So there's this, there's this sense in which we've got to carry the tension of, of God, fully God, fully man in here. The thing I want to break this morning is this idea that the temptation was easy for Jesus because he was fully God. No, he was also fully man. 
And so this scripture is incredibly important for us to realize because scripture tells us that he suffered when he was tempted. It was not a piece of cake for him. It was not a fait accompli, a rubber stamp. Okay, let's just go through this. It was a difficulty, a temptation, a trial. And so when we are being tried or tempted, it's important to be able to understand that we have a faithful and merciful high priest that knows what it's like to suffer. Not some isolated God that is sitting up there saying, well, you better buck up, boy. I know this is tough, but you can do it. No, it's my son, I've been there. The Spirit of God will enable you to stand firm. My daughter, say no, because there's so much more for you. And why? Because His Spirit lives within us, enabling us to say no. Enabling us to say, God, if this is your way, give me the strength and I'm able to do that. He, pro- he proved his power over the enemy and modeled that so that we can exercise that same power. You know, in temptation, there's this weird kind of sense that we feel alone, but we're not totally alone. And Jesus was completely alone. The disciples were not with him in there. All he had was his father. And, uh, and so there's the sense in which when we undergo temptation, sometimes we're thinking like, is, is God trying to prove us? Uh, there's uh, when Spartan babies are, are born, you had to know some kind of Greekness would come out of this, right? When Spartan babies were born, back in those days, they, they would look at them and they'd say, man, I don't know that this one really represents what a Spartan baby should be. You know, he's, he doesn't have muscles already. I don't know, you know. Um, and, and so what they would do is if they were unsure that, that this was representative of Sparta, they would leave him in the woods overnight. Uh, and if he survived, he was worthy to be a Spartan. That's not, that's not what this is. Uh, and, and when you're 13 in the Klosa tribe in South Africa, you are sent out naked with a blanket and a spear, a group of 13-year-olds. Uh, and then you're taken out and you are circumcised. It's a rite of passage. And if you survive that um, for over a week, if you survive that, you're worthy to be a son of the tribe. This is not that. There is no sense in which God is testing Jesus to see if he's got what it takes. And my friend, when you are being tested and tempted, there isn't a sense in which God is saying, okay, let's see what you've got. Let's see if you're worthy of my love. Let's see if you're worthy of the precious blood that Jesus spilled. No, there isn't a sense. There is a sense in which God wants to remind us that the Spirit of God lives within us, that the voice is echoing from God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yes, we have an enemy to our soul, but I am with you in this and you are able. So why? What's the point of this? Well, the first is to show us our own hearts. It's to reveal the idol factory in us. Uh, I've always said our hearts are like a tube of toothpaste. You don't know what's in there until you squeeze really hard. You squeeze really hard, you know exactly what's in there. It's to reveal the weakness of relying on our own flesh. How many of us have failed temptation time after time after time? And maybe God is saying to you, it's because you're trying to do this in your own strength. You're not leaning on what I've given you to be able to withstand this temptation. It's also to expose the strategy of the enemy. This is important. Um, All of our temptations are different. 
Um, all of the ways in which we, we are tempted, we, we have certain proclivities in different areas, um, but part of temptation is us understanding what the enemy is trying to do to us peculiarly. I have this, I have this weird temptation. Okay, I'm going to be super vulnerable here. Every time I sit in the exit row, which is now not very often because you have to pay for that now, every time I sit in the exit row, I have this weird temptation to just, just open the door. <laughs> I'm like, and not when the plane is on the ground, when the plane is flying. I'd be like, what would happen? Would I really be able to open the door? I'm so tempted to open this door. My wife says, this is freaking me out. It's freaking me out that this is the way your mind thinks, that, th that you are seriously tempted by this. I'm not tempted by chocolate cake. Uh, I'm tempted by tri-tip, shrimp, you know. But I'm not tempted by chocolate cake. One of the things that happens to us when we get tempted is we realize, man, this is an area of weakness for me. And as we go through the temptations, we'll see that. Your faith will be stronger, firmer, finer, purer, and more precious when you undergo temptation, trial, and testing. So what is the devil's strategy? The devil's strategy in, in this, and we see as we go back to the word, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is the greatest duh in scripture, right? And you would think, well, what, what, what is the point of saying that? If you're fasting 40 days and 40 nights and you're not hungry, you're dead. That's, but we'll see why it's important. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We fasted as a church um, for three days, okay? Not even a tenth of what Jesus was fasting. We fasted for three days, and I was feeding my dog, and there was day-old kibble with day-old salmon mixed in. And I was like, that looks pretty good, man. My car smelled like a Greek restaurant. Like I was like, ooh, I can smell oregano and Savlaki. And I, I, you know, that was three days. That was three days. This is 40 days and nights that Jesus has gone without food. And Scripture tells us, thank you very much, he was hungry. You know? <laughs> Why is that important? It's important because in times of trial and temptation, some of what the Spirit is trying to do is show you what you are hungry for. Show you what you think will satisfy you. Show you those hungers that aren't aligning with the Spirit of God. When, when, you, when you're saying no, and then you, I mean, I really want to do this. And, and, and God, help me. I don't really understand why, but I really want to participate in this. What are you hungry for? It's essential for you to know so that it doesn't catch you by surprise. What are you hungry for? What do you think will bring you Satisfaction, that's what the devil does. He tempts us in this moment with satisfaction through sensuality. M ba our base needs, our, our desire to, um, for sex, our desire for food, our desire, the, the, the kind of base needs that, that you want to fulfill in ways that are not in line with the Word of God. You know, timing is everything. Eve was alone. Jesus was weakened by food. It's important to understand when you're weak. My temptations are much harder to deal with when I'm angry. When I feel 
like I didn't get what I deserved, whether it was from God or from Karen or uh, from whoever. When, when I'm in a state of anger, I need to be careful because then that temptation looks a little sweeter and nicer. And maybe different for you guys, but it, it's important to understand that maybe when you're tired, uh, maybe when, uh, when things have gone particularly badly, maybe when, uh, when your children are around, maybe when your children are around, you know, wh wh whatever the case is, understand, and this is important, and that's why I think the Scripture says um, he was hungry. Bringing us back to if we understand ourselves and we are able to look into our souls, not only in terms of timing, but what it is that we hunger, then we'll be able to resist the fact that the devil, through sensuality, is wanting us to satisfy our thirst for those things outside of God. Here, we find the devil in the wilderness. Here, he's attacking us in the context of our satisfaction. God is not able to satisfy me. And, and, and these are the kinds of questions, uh, or these are the kinds of statements that we that we say, um, this isn't hurting anyone. Uh, this uh, this uh, thing, whether it's alcohol, whether it's movies, whatever, this doesn't have a hold on me. I can control this. But I, God, I've been alo alone for so long. I need this need satisfied. And these are the kinds of things that we say in the middle of the desert. God is able to supply, sustain, Every one of our needs, physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, financially, and that's what we see here. Not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He also tempts us in his strength here, in our strengths. Here we find the devil um, in the temple. He takes Jesus to the highest point, and he says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And, just for extra measure, I'll mention the fact that I know another scripture. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If the challenge in the first temptation is doubt, I doubt whether God can fully satisfy me. I doubt whether God is who he says he is. The second temptation is presumption. There's a presumption that we know exactly what God is thinking and what he wants us to do and how he's going to react when we do that. And we see this in the context of our nation, particularly in this area where we presume that this is what makes God happy and this is what makes him um, angry. Tertullian says that the gospel is like Jesus was crucified with two thieves on either side. Tertullian says that there are two thieves to the gospel. And the one is a hedonistic Christianity, and the other one is a moralistic Christianity. And these are presumptions that we make about the gospel. In other words, this is something that maybe we would hear in our part of the world. If the church is meant to exemplify the love of Jesus, then we should be open, accepting, and affirming that we should offer grace without truth. Okay, I'm overemphasizing for effect. Maybe... Um, on the moralistic, legalistic thief, this is our presumption. If the kingdom of God is to advance, then we need to get prayer back into schools, we need to get Christians into government, and we need to return to a Christian nation. Now, are, all, are any of those things wrong in and of themselves? Not necessarily. When we make them the Savior, they rob the power of the gospel, which is the person of Jesus who what embodied grace and truth. There is no social gospel and moral gospel. 
Uh, most people want to put those two against each other. There is only the good news. And the good news is moral and social. There is, we don't have to make a choice. And don't allow yourself to be in that place where people are forcing you to make a choice. I am able to love people that have submitted their lives to Jesus and are battling with an understanding of what it means to live as a same-sex attracted individual. I am able to do that and able to hold my ground on what marriage and sexuality means. I am able to do that because Jesus was able to do that. And so the sin of presumption is something that we are tested every day. The perversion of Scripture today is one of the biggest challenges that we face. Jesus is saying to the devil, don't force, don't manipulate, and don't play around with God. And that's what he's saying to him, where the devil tries to twist those scriptures. So, so what do we do? Like, how do we land in this place where we, are, um, we know that actually this is what God wants? Ask yourself these two questions when you're in a difficult place when it comes to the application of scripture. Does this honor God and does this help the person? It has to do both. Jesus jumping off the pinnacle would do neither. It would not honor God, and it wouldn't help anybody. And so when it comes to the idea of, God, am I presuming something about you, about your nature and character in terms of how that gets worked out? Ask that question. We had a girl in our home. We, um, we've been going through the series called God and Sex. It's been incredibly powerful. It's been incredibly painful. Uh, God has been so kind in the way in which he has revealed not only a lot of darkness, but shone his incredible light as well. We've had a lot of difficult conversations. It's, it's been amazing, but difficult. And she was sitting in our, our lounge, and, and we were talking about what it means to be a church that loves the LGBTQ com community. And we had a guy who was talking to us who is a um, a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction and believes the only way he can be faithful to the gospel is to live a celibate life. And, and she was weeping and she was saying that, um, that it's not people outside of the church that are causing her to doubt her salvation, the Bible, any of those things. It's people within the church that are telling her that she's not loving Jesus because she's wanting to hold a biblically faithful line in terms of what it means uh, to honor God sexually. And those are some of the presumptions that we need to be careful of. Um, and that's part of the joy of being in a church that is well-led. It's also part of the joy of being in a church where as a community you wrestle through these things. hope that's okay, Matt. Um, finally, he tempts us in significance. This is the glory test, right? And, that, and, and most of us think, well, you know, I guess I've got to handle others, but there's no glory coming to me, so I don't need to worry about that. No, this is for all of us. This is the one area probably where every single one of us have the greatest temptation because he says in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus has enough. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. In the Luke passage, it says that he left him for a more opportune time. There's a direct connection. I want you to see this. There's a direct connection. So we've had the devil in the wilderness. 
We've had the devil in the temple. Now we have the devil on the throne because we are worshiping him. There is a direct connection between seeking glory for yourself and worshiping the devil. Now, if that is not enough to make you stop and stir a little and think, God, my seeking glory, fame, affection, status from other people is the same as worshiping Satan, then that itself is one of those things that should help you resist temptation right there. In other words, if you say, man, I really want Maddie to like me. I really want to worship Satan, right? Will that help? It will help me for sure. And so the, the idea here is that we are exchanging a glory. Why? Because what was our purpose? Our purpose in the garden was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to be with Him and to bring glory to Him. And now Satan is saying, I will give you these things. I will give you power. I will give you affection by people. I will give you status. Um, I will say you're the best at any of these things. All you have to do is worship me. Man. Anyway, I'm going to move on here. I'm not going to say that. How do we resist? How do we resist? My wife is deeply grateful. How do we resist? Um, won't you throw that sticker up there? Do uh, you guys know what that is? It's, it's the tagline for your series. It's, it's not, not of this world. That's, that's what that means, right? How many of you have seen this on the back of a car? Right? How many of you have been cut off by someone with that sticker on the back of their car? Right? Okay. So what happens is when you put that sticker on your car, when you put that sticker on, do you automatically become not of this world? Is that, is that how the sticker works? That's how they works, right? You become a member of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, you're no longer dealing with your humanity at all. That's, that's how it takes place, right? Now, sometimes we think that way. Sometimes we think that a prayer is going to solve everything. No, it is the entrance to a relationship with God where the Spirit internally is shaping you into Christ-likeness. It is a long journey. A friend of Rick's, uh, Greg Mirror says the two powerful, most powerful forces in the universe are trying to kill you. God and Satan. The two most powerful forces are trying, for different reasons, you know, <laughs> for, for different reasons, you know. There's, there's, no, there's no alliance here. I, I, I want us to understand this, that, that the use of Scripture here is not like two Jedis going, you know, um, he will save you, you know, if you jump off. It's like, no, don't test God. Pew, pew, bang, pew, pew. This is not that. This is not like when, when a temptation comes to us, we don't just get, oh, oh, I've seen that, I've seen that, okay. Where, right, um, he says, um, here, we'll just uh, pick a, a random scripture. Um, because of the hardness of your heart, I wrote this to you. Done. I just quoted scripture. You have to leave, devil. That's not how, you know that's not how that works, right? I hope you know that's not how that works. So, so what are we talking about here? It is the application of kingdom principles by knowing the person of Jesus Christ. That is what enables us to embed the Word of God in us. It is not the parroting of Scripture. It is the application of a relationship with the risen Christ that has defeated death, sin, and the devil, that has placed His Spirit in us, walks with us daily, that enables us to say no to ungodliness, not the parroting of Scripture. Why? Who knew the Scriptures more than most people? 
The Pharisees, who knew the Scriptures? The devil, am I saying you shouldn't know the Scriptures? No, you should. Because there's a treasure in your heart when you're going through these temptations to be able to say, oh, I'm understanding what's going on here. But it is not the parroting of that. It is knowing the Word. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God. He doesn't just know the Word. The Word wasn't just about Him. He is that. In the beginning was the Word and He... Right? Come on, guys. You're going to help me out here, right? Okay. It's not... A do more, be more, learn more Christianity. It is the shaping of our hearts by abiding in Jesus the Christ. Intimate, intentional engagement with the risen Christ. Okay, how? This is the coolest part. Because it's not about us. This is where we get back to the affirmation of the Father. Galatians 4 verse 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. What does redeem mean? To justify, to absolve you of your sin, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One of the things that we have grabbed hold of real well is the idea of absolution. One of the things that we don't really understand is adoption. And we revel in absolution. And we should. There's a legal language in the Bible where, uh, where, where God is a judge and there's a sense in which there is a penalty that needs to be paid and that penalty has to be paid by someone and Jesus has paid that penalty and I'm in right standing with God. But that's not all. Absolution and justification is the door to adoption. Adoption is what brings us meaning. Adoption is what brings us relationship. The penalty of our sin has been paid for. Our sin is absolved, but we've been drawn into adoption. Understanding that it is the door and is not a competing um, theology is critically important. We underplay, even ignore this tactile tangible sense of a relational connection with God that is able to sustain us through times of tempting and trying. We are united with Christ. That is, that is both an amazing legal um, philosophical idea, but you know what it is? It is a relational reality. And so instead of thinking of God as some kind of theological orb that every now and then we just poke at and see if he's still there, we are with him. He is in us through the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer says this, that justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not in question. We're not questioning that. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no relationship with God. Sorry, we, because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this gospel offers us... Is that where it ends? 
Contrast this. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heir. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You know what the good news is? We don't have to choose. We don't have to choose. When the Spirit of God flooded your soul, when you said yes to Jesus, and the Spirit of God flooded your soul, Paul tells us that what was our response? Abba, Father, my dad. Not, oh, my great justifying sacrifice. Is that true? Yes, it's true. But what, how, did, how are our hearts built to respond? Oh, great reconciling potentate. No. No, Dad, I'm home. You found me. I'm yours. You cleansed me. You've rescued me. You've put your spirit in me. And we can be together because of what Jesus did. I can face anything because of you, my dad. God, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, uh, the privilege of adoption, we have a number of families that have adopted kids. You know, when you feel alone, um, as, as an adopted child, when you, when you feel alone, you, you feel a little insecure, do you go to your parents and ask them, can you just show me that adoption certificate? Can, can you just show me where you... No, what, what does a child do? He climbs onto the lap of his dad and he just holds him. I know I'm yours. I know I belong to you. I am so grateful for the legal adoption papers. But what I'm more grateful for is that when I'm scared, when I've blown it, I can crawl onto your lap because you're my dad. This should fortify us in times of temptation. Now, this is even more crucial when not just we're facing temptation, but when we failed in temptation. Now, understanding God as Father fortifies us to be able to say no, but what if we haven't? What if we know that we've blown it? This is more important. Because if we only understand God as judge, then when we have failed in our minds, we're not going to want to go to judge. But when we've failed, we want to run to Dad. And we want to say, God, I've messed up. I told Matt the story. We were on a missions trip, and a young girl on the missions trip got arrested for stealing, right? Just process that for a second. Embarrassed, annoyed, all of those things. I'm sitting in the car just before I go in, and um, I'm saying, God, help me to give her the grace that you've given me. I said to Matt, I've never seen a look of shame like I saw on her face. I still remember that to this day. And I saw her, and she looked, she, she looked at me over her shoulder. She was, she was dealing with the police. She looked at me over her shoulder. She just put her head down. And I, I, I went up to her, and I said her name. And I said, hey, this is not okay, but I forgive you, and it will be okay. I love you. 
that's what we need to hear when we have failed temptation. It's, it's not okay. It's not. It hurts you. It's not in line with the kingdom. It's not in line with the precepts. But I'm your dad. I'm not going anywhere. And we will make this better. Jesus modeled and taught a principle of engagement, affection, deep security. I want to show you a picture. I was uh, 25 in this picture. I, um, this was my, my second degree, and I, um, I had a very weird experience. It was the first time my dad had ever told me he was proud of me. Uh, I was 25. Um, I didn't think it really bugged me until I came to faith uh, and had the privilege every morning of hearing the words of my father say, you're my son, in you I am well pleased. You may have had an experience like this. You may not have known the pleasure of a loving father. You may not have known what it's like to screw up and to come back and someone say, it's okay, we'll fix this. You may not have known that, but I tell you this morning you can. You can know the love of a father more powerful and more kind than you could imagine. You can know the fact that you had been set free from the curse of sin and death, just like he told us. And not just to walk out free. I mean, that would be, that would be amazing. The fact, the fact that everything we have ever done and will ever do has been satisfied by Jesus is amazing. But we don't just walk out free. We walk out sons and daughters. We have something that Jesus didn't have. In a chapter from now, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, and then he talks to his disciples how to pray. Do you know how he starts? He starts with communal intimacy. Our Father. In this community, you have something Jesus didn't have. You have men and women that are able to model what it's like to live in the kingdom. You have men and women that are able to say, that's not okay. I forgive you. It will be okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and help us to forgive those that have hurt us the way that our sin has hurt you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, Matt.